The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Bear Creek Church. It's good to see everybody. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter in chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. As a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. If you are new or a guest joining us this morning, welcome. I'm Pastor Bill. Pastor Brian, who is normally up here, is, is out of town this week. So I get the privilege of sharing with you. Well, before we look at our text this morning, would you please pray with me? Father God, we come here this morning in need of you, in need of your grace, in need of your strength. I thank you for the time that we have spent singing and directing our focus on you. Thank you for the time that we have already spent with you in in prayer and at the communion table. I pray now for this time in your word that it further draws our attention and our focus to you. I pray for humble hearts to keep us teachable, that you will continually increase our desire to spend time with you. I pray that you will increase our knowledge of you, increase our love of you, and increase our awe of you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And while our focus is on uh, verses 9 through 10 this morning, I'd like for us to read verses 1 through 12. So beginning with verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble... Because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which weighs war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. You may be seated. So again, for our text this morning, we're going to focus on verses 9 through 10. And then, because I get the honor of of being up here again next Sunday, we'll, we'll keep going in this section at that time. We have seen in 1 Peter how the identity of Christ established the identity of believers. These 12 verses are talking about us as Christians, but also as the church. We are the people of God. Not just individually, but corporately. All of us together are the people of God. Our passage this morning, if you are a Christian, is describing us, you and me. It's describing Christians. It is describing the church. In these verses, Peter is saying that if you are a Christian, this is already true of you. This is who you already are. Not because... You're so awesome. But because of what God has already done in you by saving you. You are a chosen race. We are a set apart people. In verses 4 through 8, it is saying that Jesus is the cornerstone and we are the living stones. The church is being described here. What scripture describes about believers is this beautiful oneness, fellowship, and community in the church. We are one. We may come from different backgrounds. We may in many ways be very different from one another, but we are one. Many times we can be in a group of believers. This was true years ago at our home group when one person observed that a more different group of people could not be assembled. Yet what we had in common was what was most important. What we had in common was Jesus. This passage is on our identity as the church of Jesus Christ. What it means to be the church and a Christian. So let's look at our text a little more closely. Verse 9. You are a chosen race. In Scripture, we see that there is the people of God. One people of God. Only one way of salvation. So in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter calls his mostly Gentile audience a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. These are all terms used for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We see this in the book of Exodus where it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And also in the book of Isaiah, it says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So this is describing the chosen ones of the Old Testament, Israel. 
And Peter is using the same titles or descriptions to describe the chosen ones now, the church. From all over, different people, but a chosen race. In our passage, Peter is describing a corporate identity. He's talking about the church. But it also encourages us as individuals. This race is not racial in the way that we think of race today. This is not about skin color. This is saying that we are all one race, a chosen race. Jews, Gentiles, people from all over, then and today, we are a chosen race. We are set apart by God and chosen by God. The chosen race is a new people from all the peoples, all the cultures, who are now aliens and strangers among the world. We don't fit in this world. We've been set apart. We see this in verse 11, which we'll touch on next week. But it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What gives us our identity? It's not any attribute about us. But it is our our chosenness. Not sure that's actually a word, but you get what I'm saying. It's our chosenness, that we are chosen by God. That's why this amazing phrase is individually crucial for you and for me. You are a part of the chosen race because the race is made up of individuals who were chosen. So part of your identity is that you are chosen. God chose you, not because you met some list of of qualifications, but because Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Verse 9 continues and says, you are a royal priesthood. Another way Peter describes Christians is not just chosen, but also a a royal priesthood. Peter mentions it in verse 5 as well as in verse 9. The priesthood, of course, began with Aaron. And it was Aaron who stood before a holy God on behalf of a sinful people. So in some respects, he he functioned as an intermediary between God and the world. As such, the priests were the the ones most intimately acquainted with God. You are royal priests to God. Royal because you've been adopted by the king. The point here is, first, that you have immediate access to God. You don't need another human priest as a mediator. God himself provided the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. You have direct access to God through God. Consider the impact of this verse in light of of Israel's priestly history. Peter calls all believers a holy priesthood in verse 5 and a royal priesthood in verse 9. This means that every Christian is the ultimate insider. We're not merely representatives of God's place in the world. We serve as God's priests before the world. And second, you have an exalted, active role in God's presence. You're not chosen and holy just to fritter away your time doing nothing. You are called now to minister in the presence of God. 
All your life is priestly service. You're never out of God's presence. You're never in a neutral zone. And your life is either in spiritual service of worship or it's out of character. So you can see that your identity as a Christian leads to your purpose. You are chosen for a purpose. One reason for your chosenness is to minister as priests. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but no wonder Peter closes verse 10 with the words, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What an encouraging word for those who are identified in 1 Peter 1.1 as exiles. The ones who struggled with the sense of being outsiders now see in a fresh way that they are very dear to God indeed. Most of us today, we don't fully appreciate the fact that we have direct access to God. The God of the universe, the, the maker of all things, we can go to him in prayer. In fact, he asks us to do so. We see this in the book of Philippians when Paul says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And later on in 1 Peter, it says, Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. We can go directly to him. We can share our anxieties, because he cares for us. He cares for you. Peter also describes this as a holy nation. You are holy. You have been chosen by God, and therefore you're not merely part of the world anymore. You are set apart for God. You exist for God. And since God is holy, you are holy. You share his character because he chose you. You are holy. If you do an act If you do not act in a holy way, well, once again, you act out of character to who you are. As we see in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, But as he called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Peter also says that we are a people for his own possession. You are God's possession. This is expressed twice. In verse 9, it says, You are a people for his own possession. And then in verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are chosen by God. God takes you to be his own possession. Now, God owns everything. So in one sense, everyone is God's possession. So this must mean something special. And of course it does. You are God's inheritance. Christians are the ones who will spend eternity with God. Now we see again in verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are chosen that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. We are to worship the one who saved us. 
We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Here's the goal of the church and, and Christian life. It is not centered on us and our well-being. The Christian life is not about finally finding satisfaction, though in Christ we do find it. It is not about having wonderful fellowship in church, though we should have that. We are called to, as individuals and as God's own called people, the church, to bring him glory and praise and to speak about it to those around us. According to verse 9, we are heralds declaring his praises. We are saved. We are we're chosen to worship him. We have been rescued. We have been brought into communion with him as living stones into the building which he is the cornerstone for the purpose of worshiping him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Well, many of us know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To give him praise and adoration. To give him ourselves, every part of us. Our entire lives are his, and they are to bring him glory. Peter's audience is, ex is experiencing persecution. So Peter is reminding them of who they are and what they should do. We are to praise him, to worship him. We do this in every aspect of our life. But what we see here is Peter saying collectively as believers, as the church, we worship him together. God called us out of darkness. By his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. So we sing, we worship, we tell others about him. We gather together and encourage one another and lift one another up. This can take different forms, but one aspect of this might be that when we come together, we sing and we sing loudly. We sing with joy. We are singing worship to the king. Recently, both Pastor Jim and I had the opportunity to uh, go to the chapel service at Grace Christian School for pastor appreciation. One of the things that was so sweet about that time is when we were doing worship, boy, <laughs> it was loud. Those kids were singing loud. And I'm looking at the kids who would go to our church and go, let's see that on Sunday. It was a lot of fun to hear them singing. And it was encouraging to my soul. When we sing, remember that there's an aspect when our, that our worship is an encouragement to others. So we sing loud. As we continue on through our study through 1 Peter, we'll see examples of how we worship God in our conduct as we interact with others. We have received our citizenship for the purpose of proclaiming God's praises. The praise of God should be on our lips every moment because citizens of this heavenly kingdom spend eternity praising the king, singing with the angels. Revelation says, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. God made us who we are 
so that we might proclaim the excellency of his grace in choosing us, the excellencies of his authority and power in possessing us, the excellencies of his worth and purity in making us holy. In other words, he has given us our identity in order that his identity might be proclaimed through us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity, for the sake of pointing others to Christ. The meaning of our chosenness is that the excellency of God be seen in us. Therefore, being a Christian and making the greatness of God known are almost identical. And we can do it in church service, singing and praying and reading scripture. We can do it in our small groups as we tell each other what God has been doing in our lives and in our hearts. We can do it at work as we tell people what we love about God and why he is worthy of our praise. And we can do it a thousand different ways that suit our situation and our personality. But here's the key. Your faith, your being a Christian, is not about you. It's all about God and his glory. When we share our own testimony of what God has done in our lives, we remember it's not our story. It's God's story. It's all about him. By God's great mercy, he chose us. He caused us to be born again. He made us a new race. He gave us a new identity. So we now are to serve as royal priests. Why are we chosen? Why are we a new race? Why are we in a priesthood? Why are we people for his own possession? Why are we God's people? To worship him. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The procl this proclaiming can happen in lots of different ways. For example, we proclaim in word. We see this later in 1 Peter 3 where it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And we proclaim in good deeds. We'll touch on this next week, but verse 12, it says, Keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the, on the day of visitation. We were in darkness. We were dead in our trespasses. Then... In stark contrast, God brought us into his marvelous light. So how does this impact our view of church? If we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. If we are God's people and have received God's mercy, we want to reflect that in our coming together. We want to act like God's people when we're together. We're not a bunch of individuals. We are one body. We are the church. 
As we have said, there is the church in view in these verses. We are talking about who makes up the church and what it should look like. If our purpose, if we were saved that we might declare God's praise, how does this impact our thinking about the church? Our thinking about this church? I suspect that for many of you, you may be guilty of having a low view of church. That your view of church is too small. Because I know that for a lot of Christians today, that is the case. Just think about the question, why do we go to church? How would you answer that? For some, church is nothing more than what we grew up doing. It's our tradition. It's, it's habit. It's nothing more than just a routine. For some, well, you're here because your parents made you. Some parents go to church because they think their kids ought to be raised the right way. Maybe you come to get a weekly pep talk that gets you through your work week or tips and tricks to be a better person. It's possible that you attend church because of the the wonderful relationships you've built over the years or because you, you like the teaching or the ministries. In essence, we can boil all these reasons down to one word, consumerism. Admit it, we can have a consumer mentality when it comes to church. When we think of church, we think only what it can do for us. Ever found yourself saying or thinking after going to church, you know, I just didn't get that much out of it today. We, we get stuff out of it, don't get me wrong, but is that all that we're after? I believe what we're talking about this morning is more than just what we get out of it. Whenever and why ever we adopt a consumer mindset, it reveals and reinforces a view of the church that is too small. It's too small. Some of the things may be true, and they may be good things, but it's still a small view of the church if that's all we're after. If we truly understand what God has called the church to be and to do, we will see that reflected in our view of the church, in our approach to church. So you and I, we need this section in First Peter. In verses 4 through 8, Peter described the church as the the new temple of God, built on the foundation of Jesus. That Jesus is the cornerstone, and we are the living stones. Now he describes the church as a community. But a community that points the world to the glory of God and the joy of his kingdom. With both our lives and our lips. In other words, the church is not secondary or background to God's plans. It is central to them. The church is God's idea. This is why it is such a disconnect when someone claims to be a Christian but says they have no need for the church. He has not given you the church to fit your plans and priorities. He has given you to the church to serve his plans and priorities. You are here to serve, not just to be served. Be served, 
just don't see that as all that is happening. So what does this look like? Let's consider for just a moment Bear Creek Church. Consider the order of service that we do each week. There is an intentionality to it. When we talk about worship, we're not only talking about singing. The entire service is an opportunity for worship. And you play an active role in the service. And it's not just to fill a seat. We are here to to greet and encourage each other. If you're tempted to, to walk in the door and just sit down and not speak to anyone, you need to fight that temptation. We are to encourage one another. So we, we talk to people. We greet newer people and make sure that they and everyone feels welcome. We have announcements that starts the service. Now, announcements on one hand are just announcing events that are coming up that we want to bring to your attention so that you can be a part of them. And that itself is being a part of the church. That's how you connect, grow, and serve within the body of believers. But announcements serve a second purpose. They give you an opportunity to pray. When you hear of an event that's coming up, add that event to your prayer list. Pray about it. Pray for those who will come. Pray for those who are planning it and putting it together. Sometimes that can be a stressful and time-consuming endeavor. Pray that the event will be to God's glory. We sing. We have... Worship leaders that spend time considering what are good songs to sing. What are songs that are theologically accurate. They gather others to help with worship. For some, for some of those people, it might be the only time in their lives that they play or sing in front of people. These musicians are not up here to perform for you. They are not performers. They are worshipers. They are worshiping God and inviting us to, wor- to worship God with them. We have a, a time of prayer. A prayer that is thought over, considered, and even prayed about ahead of time. It's not a time for you to tune out and just let them pray. But be considering the words and, and praying along with them. We have a time of offering. We don't always see the giving of offering as a time of worship. But it is. We are worshiping God through the giving of gifts. It is a time to stop and thank God for his provision that you even have a gift to give. And that's true no matter what method you use for giving. We pray for those that will receive these funds, the the missionaries that can only do what they do because of your generosity. Like today on the first and third Sunday of the month, We enjoy communion together as we are reminded of the good news of the gospel. That we were dead in our trespasses. But God, by his great mercy, caused us to be born again. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. He defeated death and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We need to be reminded of this often. The preaching. We open God's word together. We work through scripture together. And in humility, we are taught and reminded of the truths of God's word. It is our job as pastors to stand up here and preach God's word. But it is then on you to listen. 
it probably says something when there are so many articles and books on the topic of being an active listener in church. They wouldn't feel the need to write these if this were not an issue. In sermons, we are reminded of things like the sovereignty of God. Something that when life gets hard, not if, but when life gets hard, it's a truth of scripture that we can hold on to. I know in my life, during times of suffering, during times of struggle, the sovereignty of God was crucial to me. Some of you may remember a few years back, we had Tim Challies here, and he shared with the, with the men on Saturday, and he shared at church on Sunday. I remember talking with him about how excited he was, because in not too long, he was going to go see his son, who was going to college at the time. Just a short time later, his son Nick unexpectedly passed away. Recently, Pastor Jim had the idea to, to mail a package to Tim and his wife Eileen of, of Moose Munch and Harry and David coffee cups and plates. That package arrived this past Wednesday morning, and Tim texted Pastor Jim saying, Thanks so much for the gift. It was a wonderful surprise and was especially meaningful to Eileen, who, with the second anniversary of Nick's death coming tomorrow, was especially in need of some encouragement. The timing was God-ordained. Pastor Jim thought of them and wanted to encourage them, but didn't realize the timing. On Thursday of this week was the two-year anniversary of their son's death. I want to read with you a portion of what was shared on Tim Challey's blog. On the anniversary of their son's death, Tim turned his blog over to his wife, Eileen, and she said this. When I was in Nashville for the Seasons of Sorrow book launch, Tim was asked several times, how are your wife and daughters doing? It was asked often enough that Upon reflection, I think people understand that Tim has been nuancing the ways he talks about my experience with grief as well as that of our girls. He has been very careful to only give voice to his experience of the last few years and to word it in such a way that people don't assume that the rest of the family's experience necessarily matches his. I love him for this and appreciate it very much. After all, Tim's story is only part of the story. That's because a dad's grief is different from a mom's grief. Well, this makes sense. God has created each person to be unique, which means each person's experience of grief is unique. Each person's relationship with the deceased is different as well. And this lends itself to differences in how each person grieves him. Adding another layer of complexity, each circumstance of loss is different as well. As we hear from people who have lost loved ones, I am continually struck by how different and unique each situation is. How grief shows differently in each person and each circumstance. This must be another example of how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Tim recently asked if for the second anniversary of Nick's death, I would be willing to 
write something about it, something that may help answer the question of how I am doing. I was told it would probably take about two years before I felt anything close to back to normal. And it very much feels like the end of year two is the beginning of a new season. Because of this, it feels appropriate to look back and ponder what I am thankful for. And I want to share some of this. and shortening a little bit for time, but this is what she says she's thankful for. I am thankful for God preparing me. God has been kind. He gave us one of the hardest things, and yet he also gave so much to help us survive. Looking back, I now see how he prepared me years ago to weather such a storm. He blessed me by giving me a bedrock of theology that in my weakest moment I had to simply deploy. I can see how he gave us what we needed moment by moment to continue to walk in faith through such suffering. When nothing felt true, when God didn't feel kind, when he didn't feel good, when he didn't feel just, I had a choice. I could choose to believe what my heart and my emotions were telling me, that God was cruel, unkind, and unjust. Or I could choose to believe what my mind knew to be true of God's character and trust that eventually my emotions would catch up to my brain. There are days when this is still a struggle, but I have learned not to trust my feelings. Emotions cannot inform truth. Rather, truth must inform emotions. God didn't abandon us. He walked with us and prepared us. I had to choose to see his presence, but he was there. And I am so thankful that in his mercy, he prepared me. And she says, I am thankful for God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is both comforting and terrifying at the same time. I think in the abstract, I knew the Lord could choose to do anything he wanted in our lives. But suddenly, on November 3rd, I learned dramatically that he actually will do anything. Even so, I am so thankful God is in control. This situation would, would be only worse if God had no control over it. God had every right to choose this for us. I may not much like it, but I know he has purpose in it. As humans, we seem to have a driven need to understand why things are happening. It makes us feel better if we can attribute a specific purpose to the hardships we are experiencing. But the reality is that in our human weakness and frailty, God has not given us that ability. We can guess, we can suspect, but we cannot know. God instead gives us knowledge of his sovereignty and asks us to trust by faith that all things work together for our good and his glory. How this is true in Nick's death, I do not know. I don't expect to ever know on this earth the full purpose of this suffering in our lives, but I do know one day it will all make sense. 
I can wait, patiently trusting in God's character. I am thankful he sees the big picture, that he is in control of all things and that nothing happens outside his will. I am thankful that God is sovereign. I am thankful this is temporary. I also know that as hard as this is, it is all temporary. I am so thankful for this world, that this world is not our home. Until that day, when the Lord calls me home, my job on this earth is not yet done. So I will wait patiently, enduring what I need to, until one day there will be no more mourning, no more crying or pain, and every tear will be wiped away, and death shall be no more. I am so thankful this is temporary. Lastly, I am thankful that I got to be Nick's mom. I have wanted to tell you all about Nick, but as I began to write this, write this out, I found that I still can't. Another time, perhaps, when the pain is a little less raw, when my heart hurts just a little bit less, I'll be able to share a bit more about my firstborn, the one who first made me a mom. God, in his mercy, gave me a son who brought light and joy to my life for 20 years. Despite all the sadness, I am so very thankful I got to be a mom to my Nick. And she says, a few days after Nick's death, I wrote to a friend of mine, and I expressed my longing for the day joy would return. I knew logically that one day it would come, but looking forward, all I could, all I could see was heartache and sorrow. These have been hard, hard days. But God, in his kindness and mercy, has sustained us. We have grieved and mourned and wept. But as the two-year mark draws to a close, I am seeing that joy return. A joy that is less tainted by sorrow. I am thankful. God has been present and I think it will end here as I have ended every note I have written in the last two years. God is still good. I've heard too many people over the years talk about church as a good place to go when you need it. That is a small view of church. To have an attitude like we just read means preparing for it before you need it. It means coming to church, worshiping God, wrestling with things like God's sovereignty, being challenged in our thinking. That we can say what she said. I can choose to believe what my mind knew to be true of God's character and trust that eventually my emotions would catch up to my brain. We do this when we are not struggling, trusting that this will prepare us for when things are hard. She ended that article by saying, God is still good. Do you believe that? It is true. God is not just good when life is easy or things are going well. But when we experience tragedy, when life is hard, God is still good.
when we come together as the church, we put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, we long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation, if indeed we have tasted that the Lord is good. And he is good. That's why we can be comforted by these words that we read today. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we worship him because he alone is worthy of our worship. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we come before you now humbled. We read articles like we read and we can be challenged about our own attitude with our own circumstances. We can so easily forget the ways you have blessed us and even, even begin to convince ourselves that we are deserving and entitled to your blessings. Forgive us of this pride in our hearts. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for your patience as we continually run to other things to seek comfort. Forgive us for this as well. And we ask that you work in our hearts to see you as our strength, to see you as our comfort, to run to you when life is hard or when we are scared and hurting, to run to your word and to run to you in prayer. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for Bear Creek Church. Thank you for each person whom you have orchestrated to be a part of this church family and each person whom you have orchestrated to be here today. That we can encourage each other. That we can pray for each other. That we can sing songs of praise to you together. That we can, as one body, worship you, our great King. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.